Matt Weinhold from Monster Party joined me to discuss Frankenstein from 1931 and part 4 of our Universal Monster series. Let's discuss what it means to be alive and some parenting tips for reanimated corpses on this episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and with me is my good friend Matt Weinhold to talk about the 1931 film Frankenstein. Matt, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's 95 degrees in October, so I am not not at all afraid of the environment changing. No, not at all. No, no. Well, I'm on Percocet right now, so everything is wonderful. I just had back surgery, and uh, Percocet has shown me the way. I'm glad you're okay, and I'm glad you're not in pain. (laughs) Thank you, sir. We've been friends for a long time, going back to our when my family owned Rooster Tea Feathers Comedy Club, and oh yes, you performing there, yes, and you were kind of like ahead of being king of the nerds at that point in time. I remember your headshot; you were in a Commander Riker uniform. Yeah, yeah. No, I did. I did a lot of things that got in the way of me getting laid. So yes we still look towards you as, as the one to model. To <laughs> well, <laughs> that's high praise indeed. I do like to consider myself uh, the Fonzie of the Star Trek invention. You, you, you are my friend. You are the cool kid. <laughs> and you, what an oxymoron. <laughs> hey. Well, let's, let's jump into a little bit about Frankenstein and sure. the 1931 film. When did you first see this movie? Well, you know, I don't really have a specific memory of the first time I saw it. I know it must have been on TV. And it was probably either Creature Features, which, you know, you and I are both well acquainted with, um, horror movie show that ran in the Bay Area, hosted by Bob Wilkins, and then later by John Stanley. And, uh, yeah, this was a really fun kind of uh, irreverent look at uh, horror movies. He'd always, both of these hosts would always have a couple movies on and they'd, if they were terrible, they'd let you know that they were terrible. And I always appreciated that. But, uh, but in the midst of showing these films that were, you know, B science fiction movies or whatever, they show the classics. So I saw Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula and all of the universal films and then the hammer ones and everything else. And I know that I, Frankenstein, the whole Frankenstein series, I'm sure I've seen probably just dozens of times. The 1931 movie is a work of art. Why do you think this movie is important in film history? Well, you know, it was, I feel like it was almost the perfect storm of the actor. You've got Boris Karloff really adding an element of depth to a role that given to a lesser actor, uh, wouldn't have been there. And, you know, there's been, we've all heard the stories of that originally they they wanted Bela Lugosi to play it. And Bela Lugosi is, by any means, he's not a bad actor, but he would have been the wrong actor. And he didn't want to do the role anyway. And so the fact that they managed to get Boris Karloff, who's hungry, and really wanted to make something of this role. And then you've got James Whale, one of the greatest directors of all time. And, you know, he's running this show. You've got the sets. You've got 
also the fact that this is kind of one of the, I would say one of the earliest popular with a wide audience kind of horror movie. And, and I think that that was one of the things that really also made it stand out. And we had Dracula, but this had so many things going for it. And I also feel like the characterization of the monster was very important to the success of it because especially in the beginning films, the first three films, the ones with um, Boris Karloff, that the monster was very sympathetic. And that's what always drew me to the Frankenstein monster. I mean, I, I'm also a big fan of the Wolfman because the Wolfman also has their sympathy, but it's sympathy for Lawrence Talbot. Once he's the Wolfman, you know, all bets are off, like kill this guy. <laughs> but the Frankenstein monster, you feel sorry for him from the very beginning. He's tortured. He's kept in a cellar. He's, you know, Fritz, who uh, later became Igor, would taunt him with fire. It was just a horrible life. And even the fact that as the story goes, Fritz is looking to get this brain that he has to steal that is this scientist brain. He breaks that brain he drops the brain glass on the floor and then uh he gets the abnormal brain but even with the abnormal brain he's the frankenstein monster is still pretty nice i mean if anyone had just been nice to him for a few days i think it would have all turned around like this is a creature that really didn't want to hurt people you've got that great scene in the first frankenstein movie when he's with the little girl that they parodied so well in Young Frankenstein, where he's you know playing, the little girl's making boats out of daisies and throwing them in the water, and then you know he decides to throw her in the water, but it's not because he's a monster; he's playing. And if it's, it's funny, it's just like if anyone would have just been nice to this guy for two days straight, it would have turned everything around. I agree. Because Henry Frankenstein clearly knew nothing about parenting while he figured out how to resurrect a body. <laughs> yeah, he'd be a horrible parent. He, horrible parent. Like, there was absolutely no child development, nothing. And, and while he was correct in saying, you know, you know, this body is not yet lived, it's like, yeah, and it needs parents. And you forgot that element and you made him a monster by treating yeah. him horribly. Going Sunlight, to, you know? <sighs> Maybe if I didn't sleep on hay. It's horrible. Now, on the flip side with little Maria, I think that's one of the most powerful scenes because it shows Karloff's acting ability. Yeah, yeah. From joy to utter horror in realizing that he had harmed the little girl. Yeah, uh, he was just as upset as anyone. I, I'm, I think at that moment, again, he reacts to everything like a kid, like a, like a, almost like a toddler, where I don't even think at that moment he knew that he, he, he was still confused as to what he actually did wrong. I'm sure he didn't think that he killed her, but he knew something bad was happening. And once again, all it would have taken was just someone to sit with him and explain to him things that any parent would do, like this is right and wrong this is you know how this is the world that you are entering into and here's what to expect that would have been very helpful to the frankenstein monster but as you pointed out he had a, a horrible father 
that and maybe if Elizabeth had been around, things could have turned out differently. But yeah, yeah. That or Frankenstein's father showing up, thinking that Junior's been running around with another woman and wanting to get his son married off. It's 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 like really. Is this your, is this your fan fiction? What is this? You know, in in the thirty one movie with uh with his dad. Oh oh you all oh, right okay yeah yeah. He, he, appears to be developing a drinking problem, wanting to drink his grandmother's wine all the time. It's like, yeah. dude. Well, you know, you compare that Frankenstein, that Dr. Frankenstein, then to the Hammer one, forget it. Like, that, Frank, that Dr. Frankenstein was so cold. You know, Peter Cushing is all about the science element. I, there was no nurturing. Of course, in the um, Curse of Frankenstein, that Frankenstein monster is barely even uh, self-aware. He's very, you really, in that movie, get the, the feel of the fact that it was an abnormal brain or something was wrong with the brain that this monster had and that, he, you know, he, he didn't have any of the, the layers, let's just say, that Karloff brought to the role. Next year's the bicentennial of the story of Frankenstein. Why do you think the story's endured for 200 years? I think, for one, there's the idea of the uh, modern Prometheus, the idea that you know, a man can act as God and create life. I think there's something really fascinating about that and getting into the idea of, well, what is life? And then, you know, I know we're going to talk about some of the legal stuff and everything, but the idea of that is what is this thing is it human is it beyond human is it better than human you know there's there's a lot of uh moral and ethical questions that are in that story whereas dracula is kind of cut and dried you you know that that plot is pretty basic in what it's telling but frankenstein yeah a lot of nuance and a lot of a lot of questions I think to this day, I think a lot of people, especially the way that they, the, the way that filmmakers over the years have approached the monster and the levels of intelligence, like there was this recent TV show, Penny Dreadful. In Penny Dreadful, their Frankenstein monster is, there's a great scene where you see Dr. Frankenstein and he's got this human being, this guy, he doesn't look like a monster. He looks like pretty much like a regular human being, and he's. It, it's clear that this is his creation, and he's teaching him all these things about the world. And in the middle of the scene, all of a sudden, this human-like creature that he's created is just decimated by the old creature who shows up and goes like, "Oh, oh, I see. So now you figured out how to help raise a monster." Where were you when I needed you? And I loved it. And that guy, and the guy who played the uh, the monster was was really great. It was it's a flawed series overall, but especially like that first season, the monster was probably my favorite part of the show. I did a little research a while ago about what was the like the first court opinion that referenced Frankenstein and making an, an alliteration to the character uh-huh. uh, to make, to prove a point. 1896. Oh my. Yeah. And it was uh, the court of appeals of Kentucky. And it was a, 
uh, election appointment case where you know the issue was uh, you know, people who were appointed by a mayor claimed that they couldn't be fired by the mayor, uh-huh. and, and the court made the opinion that you no, know, we're you know, like that would create some Frankenstein's monster of of appointments. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, like, and, wow. like, yeah, and like, and that was eighteen ninety six, and and uh, so like it's been alive and well in our collective consciousness for proving a point that that just connects with people. Cause yeah, I mean, creating something that creating life from nothing, from body parts and bringing life to this thing that only you really, I mean, yes. I mean, if you're religiously inclined in any way, you could argue that the, you know, the, the, the spark of life is something that comes from the divine, but yet, in that story, this is definitely someone taking a shortcut and through science creating a being that they, they, kind of, they kind of are acting in the God role. And I think that that is fascinating and scary. And there's so many different little tendrils of where, you know, different places that the story goes in your head. One of the things that really shocked me uh, about it was Fritz. Why have Dwight a, Fry, the great Dwight Fry? Yeah, you know, sadistic assistant who is taking a whip to you know a, a seven foot tall, <laughs> super strong individual. <laughs> wa- yeah, he's waving, got balls. <laughs> yeah, waving fire in the guy's face. And it's like Fritz was scrappy. He could climb up, cut down somebody who was hanging from the gallows. But like, dude, why taunt the resurrected being? Bullies always beat downward. That monster, status-wise, was under Fritz. So Fritz thought, hey, you know, let's teach you right from the very beginning that I'm in charge, that I'm the guy to be afraid of. Not a good plan. And no. <laughs> when the monster, and I hate the fact we call him the monster because he never gets a proper name, and I don't think he is the a creature, monster. right? Sometimes you hear that one. Yeah, the creature, I think that's more appropriate because he's made a monster because he's treated as one. Not well, because- I, I like the term monster because I, I, it's like uh, taking a pejorative and, and owning it. Mm-hmm. Because we, we're all, we could all be considered monsters depending on who's looking at us. The story does have multiple monsters in it. And yeah. I, I think Fritz is one of them. When the monster hangs Fritz, I don't know if the monster understands he's killed Fritz. Because when... He thought it was Christmas. And, or pinata. Yeah, or something uh, like that. It was a quinceanera. And he was just trying to have a little fun. Because when Dr. Frankenstein and Dr. Was it Waldman enter the, the cellar where they're where the creature is kept, the creature tries shooing them away. Yeah. I don't know if he understood that Fritz was dead. Well, that's what I was saying when it came to Maria mm-hmm. and the flowers in the pond, that I don't think, I, I think it's way too early in this creature's development that he fully understood what life and death were in, in regards to his world. And that, you know, I mean, if you look at how many days this thing had been alive, um, you know, we're barely out of the 
object permanence stage, you know, like you're not really going to have a firm grasp on life and death and the meaning of that. Not being a psychologist or an expert in human development, we're dealing with someone who could range from newborn to toddler to maybe what, three or four year old at best. Right. And, and that's, and, and he's what, maybe 10 days old? Yeah, pretty quickly. And, Pretty impressive for an abnormal brain, too. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that, that scene when they talked about the, the scarring on the brain or whoever had been abnormal, that struck me as some of the eugenic arguments that were done in the late 19th, Ooh. early 20th centuries that were used to justify sterilization of people, institutionalization right. of people. And, and those arguments just falsified evidence to to torture people so turning to the monster yes you know i I went to time tunnel toys and picked up one of the 1980s ones uh, and it's it's handsome little guy how many frankenstein's monsters action figures do you have oh my god uh so Frankenstein, the Frankenstein monster is probably one of my favorites. Um, even though, like I said, I have a, a particular love for the Wolfman because that was like I was he was kind of my favorite monster when I was a real small child. But Frankenstein ended up surpassing everybody because of all the things that we just discussed. And so I have probably more Frankenstein monsters than anything. I mean, I have a lot and probably, I don't know, more than 30, maybe 40, depending on statues and action figures and books. I mean, I have so many pieces of memorabilia, lobby cards, movie posters, and I just love them. And and I think we can all agree that how much we love Sideshow Toys and Sideshow did a lot of great Frankenstein monster figures they did there was like a little like seven inch all plastic one but the ones that i really enjoyed were the the 12 inch the kind of standard gi joe you know size that had clothes and i love those and so i have a bunch of those i have a frankenstein monster i have the bride of frankenstein i have young frankenstein that they did um and i yeah i just love those are my favorites. And then Distinctive Dummies, which is this company out of Thailand, they would do a lot of figures that nobody else would. And they did a Colin Clive, Dr. Frankenstein, and a Dr. Pretorius, which are so good. They're like looking at the actor. I mean, like that's how perfect the likenesses are. And the clothes are really done well. And even the shoes are like tiny miniature versions of like, uh, you know, a full size shoe. Uh, Just unbelievable. And I I love that stuff. And then another favorite of mine is uh, we had a guy who was on our podcast monster party, this guy, G Charles, Wright. He's a casting director and I've known him for quite a while. And we were (laughs) at the third street promenade in Santa Monica. And there's the store puzzle zoo. And we're walking around and we see this glow-in-the-dark Frankenstein head. And we're like, oh, man, that's cool. And it's so, like a full-size 
head bust. And uh, G. Charles asks how much it is. And they go, it's 50 bucks. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, oh, I'm like, do you have another one? And they looked and they had another one. So we both walked out of Puzzle Zoo with matching glow-in-the-dark Frankenstein heads. And talk about uh, a wonderful, nerdy first date. <laughs> I see nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be wrong not to get yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, what are the odds? <laughs> it's just meant to be. It's like it was yeah. waiting for you. And no, exactly. you made the right call, my friend. The yeah. right call. But yeah, I love that. And I'm not, you know, I also have this um, battery operated thing that was, um, it was advertised in Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. It was called Frankenstein Loses His Pants. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not that one. Yeah, it was this thing and you could get it. And I always wanted one because I just thought it was ridiculous. But they kind of molded the, fr- the way that they did the monster was a unique um, design. It didn't have the Jack Pierce flathead. Probably because they couldn't, they'd be sued. But, but it's yeah, it's the monster, and he has this uh, green face. You press a button, and his face lights up green, and he his arms kind of wave around menacingly, and then all of a sudden his pants fall down, and he's wearing striped red boxer shorts. <laughs> and as soon as this happens, his face turns red, and then it shuts off. <laughs> And that is so wonderful. And the, whoever thought this up, the fact that they got the green light, like, yeah, I'll go with it. Approved. Make yeah. it happen. <laughs> we all want to see that. Your, your toy collection. I mean, Ackerman would be proud. It's, it is impressive. Yes. It's not like Larry's. Um, I actually enjoy many of my things. Uh, but I have some stuff still in the package, too. Yeah, I I do that as well. Uh, some of the stuff, uh, some of the new uh, Marvel toys and the uh, Black Series Star Wars toys, uh, the packaging's nice, and so I will yeah. use I'll use those. I'll open them and like use them on a you know for a blog post, and then put them back in their box. Well, that's what's great now that they're doing is that you can actually do that. You can take something out of the package and not ruin it. Exactly, you can put it, slide it back in. But you've been waiting for that for years. Yeah, and they were very smart to do that because apparently geek collectors are now in charge at Hasbro and whatever other companies make those. So it's like, yes, get smart. It's a good thing. Yeah, everybody who uh, grew up like us is now in charge. And that's why there's so many things that I want and need and can't afford any of them. <laughs> yeah, I... You know, I went to Disneyland on my birthday and I saw these special effects Obi-Wan Kenobi lightsaber. You know, that lights oh, that up. was great. Yeah, 160 bucks. And I said, no, not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, but that would look good on my wall. And, and maybe Christmas time that will happen. But Yeah, and maybe you, know, you drop an abnormal brain into that little thing. And, ab- uh, and, and raise it right, Josh. Oh, I would. I would because the creature <laughs> needed love. You know, Always. On that note, my aunt did name her golden retriever Abby. Abby Normal. <laughs> I love her. Yeah, she 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 rocks. And yes, 
it's, it's well, a, you know, a, my cat, my cat's name is Frankenstein. That is awesome. Named, uh, uh named for, uh, after, of course, Dr. Frankenstein, but also at the same time, also named after, uh, Dave Lister's cat in the show Red Dwarf. Oh, that's right. Yep. Cause it's a black cat. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Calling oh. all ladies. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of Frankenstein, have you read the new comic Made Men? No. Just came out, I think, last month, and it's, ind- it's independently published, so I don't remember who's the publisher, but it's the great grandniece of Frankenstein. She gets into the family business after her colleagues are, are killed, and it's it's good. So highly recommend Made Men because it's the legacy of Frankenstein taking place several What generations. company is this? Uh, I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Okay. Recommended by my comic shop and I picked it up and was delighted with the story. I was like, this is fun. This is fun. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, well, that's the other thing too is that the legacy of the original Frankenstein story is... I mean... Any kind of robot story, like iRobot, that story definitely has its roots in the original Frankenstein story. And, you know, Herbert West Reanimator. There's there's so many little places that that story has gone in modern pop culture that, uh, yeah, talk about something that has some staying power. That would be Frankenstein. 200 years and counting. In the 1931 movie, and this could lead into the discussion of, of the law, who do you think are the real monsters in the film? I would blame Dr. Frankenstein more than I would blame, say, Fritz. Uh, you would expect Fritz to behave in the way that uh, he does towards the Frankenstein monster because he kind of almost doesn't know any better. Whereas with Dr. Frankenstein, given his education and you would think his moral upbringing, that he would know that half of this experiment that he's doing is not just about bringing this thing to life. It's about what do you do with the life once it's, it's created. And it seems like within that story, he never really thought about the second half. And maybe that's because he was just so obsessed with the idea of, or with the goal of, creating life that and maybe thought that he would never even necessarily achieve this goal that he didn't even think about the second part, but that's strange though, because you, you know, that's, that's really, once you've got this creature that you've created, well now what? And that had to have been in there. And the fact that he just dropped the ball so dramatically from just every angle, how you treat it, the environment that this creature is living in. So many things he drops the ball with. And so I would say he is the real monster, especially when you follow it into the second movie, Bride of Frankenstein, where you would think that after everything that had gone wrong, like all the deaths that the, the monster is responsible for, um, you know that that's on you. You would think that Dr. Frankenstein would own it and say, this is 
this is all on me. I, I got this ball rolling and it's up to me to make it right. So do something with the monster, reconnect with it and figure out some way to make things right. And in the book, in the original book, uh, you get a little bit more of that because in the original book, the creature is able to speak much earlier in the story and become, and like in Penny Dreadful too, it's the same kind of thing. Like the creature is, is actually pretty well educated. Whereas in the universal films, it's, it, he's still kind of stumbling around even in Bride of Frankenstein trying to put together his thoughts. But I would think that as Dr. Frankenstein, you'd want to do something to make it right. But he doesn't. He always manages to fail in that regard. So, yeah, I mean, first would be Dr. Frankenstein. And then Dr. Pretorius, I don't even really blame him because he's just an evil son of a bitch anyway. So I wasn't expecting, the minute Pretorius walks onto the screen, you go, well, you're not going to get anything soft and adorable about this character. Yeah, there's a lot of culpability there because he creates life with no thought about what to do with it. And that's just irresponsible. I, you know, I do hold him and, you know, as, as the reason why we're, you know, here discussing it, like that's, he's the one that, that does everything. I do qualify Fitz as a deviant. Frankenstein did hire him to be his assistant for a reason. So there is some behavioral issues there. But you would, but almost everybody else in the Frankenstein story, when they come upon that monster, they immediately want to attack it, hurt it, or run from it. Mm -hmm. And so even Fritz doesn't behave that much differently than anybody else in that story. Which brings me to the, the mob right. when little Maria's body is brought into town and the Burgermeister says, you know, we will have justice. What they do is not justice. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> there's, there's no investigation. There's no probable cause for an arrest warrant. They they light torches to go hunt him down and with the orders of catch him if possible. And it was it was a mission to kill. And yeah. when they get him cornered in the old uh windmill, you know, and he is locked in there, they don't try to capture him, they light it on fire. Yeah, yeah. It's which again goes to Karloff's acting ability that he does convey pure terror absolute horror of of a situation of being burned alive yeah it's terrifying it's terrifying and it it hits home in a way from you know as a lawyer we don't want that i mean there's absolutely no justice taking place in that movie yes that's a full-on lynch mob you would think that at that stage that you would bring bring him in alive for many reasons for figuring out exactly what did happen. But I would also feel like from what they have suspected about this monster, wouldn't you want this thing alive just from a exploitation point of view? Yeah. I mean, it is science that like, oh yeah, you did create life or resurrected a body or bodies, however you want to break that down. But they go right to murder. Yeah. And, like that's just just so fundamentally disturbing 
that their first impulse is to hunt and destroy and not about a fair trial. And that one of the issues that we have in the law is mental capacity, you know, that there has to be uh, mens rea intent and somebody has to understand the wrongfulness of their actions. I think there's a pretty clear argument that the monster doesn't have mental capacity to have committed the crimes. Because you're dealing with maybe a four-year-old intellect. Yeah. And we're talking about American law. Yeah, but that that part of that still goes to common law and, and the idea okay. of due process that you still want a trial. You still – not everyone might have a, a innocent until pro, uh, proven guilty, but you still have to prove the elements of a case against somebody and whether or not, you know, the you know, uh, intent matters, capacity matters. And well, that's – Let me ask you this then. Mm-hmm. So one of my legal questions was, uh, that all is well and good if the Frankenstein monster is human. But if he is not human, then does he have the same, is he subject to the same laws and rights as a human being? So the law is not designed for people coming back from the dead. So... You know, like we would have, we're, we're, we're playing with fire of like, how would a court handle this? I think a court, at least in the United States, would take the view that the law would apply to the creature and treat him as a human being. That would mean we would view him as a person. Okay. Because that's what the Constitution says, all persons. And which is why, say, someone who's not legally in the country is afforded all of those rights that we would have as a U.S. citizen, that they're a human being, therefore they're going to have those rights. Now, there's no evidence that that Dr. Frankenstein gave the monster two hearts or a second set of thumbs on the other side of the hand, that at its core, the monster is comprised of parts of human beings to make a new human being. So like for all legal purposes, he is human because everything about his body mirrors a human being. That's what I would argue, that we're not dealing with an animal and we're not dealing with a corpse because it's living. Right. We might have the brain of somebody who once was living. So I think the the only way to handle it would be to classify him as a person because he's doing things a person could do and acting in a way that mirrors human child development. Right. Hey, here, here's one out of left field for you. Okay. Because I was thinking about this. So if the Frankenstein monster or the creature, whatever you want to call him, if, if the creature has the brain of a previously dead person, and so let's say that's where the seat of consciousness and let's just for argument's sake say the soul would the family of that guy who they got the brain from would the family have any sort of rights when it came to well no that's our uncle and now you brought him back to life and so we have jurisdiction over this guy because that's our uncle's brain in there maybe 
things get a little funky with this because Frankenstein commits a variety of crimes with getting the body parts. Okay, so so there's grave robbing. We know that. Yeah, and and the the legal term is technically body stealing, and that goes back for centuries. And then one of the things that we have in the law that that goes back with, you know, as a reason why we don't want body stealing is we don't want unauthorized autopsies of bodies because that can freak family members out, and the goal is to get a body buried. Well, Frankenstein violated all of that out the wazoo, and then he was successful at bringing somebody's relative back to life the issue is does that personality from that deceased person still exist or are we dealing with a completely new individual right like they wiped the slate as soon as they brought this thing back to life yeah and if it's the situation of he doesn't remember his prior life the personality is completely gone and the skill set's completely gone and it's like a brand new person now that might lessen family members' claims that is actually our family member and, and we want to exert control and take this person on as a dependent. But, but, but what if, say, now this is not a body created from body parts. If someone, if that person's family, this guy there, his wife or daughters or whatever, the family members, Let's just say this guy was injured in an accident. And so now he doesn't have any memory of who he was. That family would still have rights, right? Oh, totally. Because that's living family member who had a traumatic brain injury of some kind and, and needs care. It does spin things in a way that, that you don't normally expect because of the resurrection factor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one to kind of wrap your head around, right? Yeah, because the law is not designed for it. Yeah. The law is not designed for people to come back from the dead. It's, yeah. and, and that's where things get screwy with this because you can't, ex- you know, the law is not designed for it. So you start dealing with principles of equity and trying to apply what we have. Right. So when it comes to Dr. Frankenstein, then, how many laws did he break? Aside from, aside from grave robbing, I guess there'd also be like accessory to murder. How many laws did Dr. Henry Frankenstein break? Well, each body that he stole would be one count. Okay. Then you get into the unauthorized autopsies. Okay. You get, he's staying in the abandoned mill or watchtower. And that, if it's abandoned and he, he could be like making some squatters claim to it. Okay. If somebody still owns it, he could be trying to adversely possess it. But that takes, you know, seven years to do. So that's a little funky. But if it's abandoned, he's arguably has, has a claim to it because, okay. but, but that could, that's one of those funky ones. How is he getting funds to pay for all of this equipment and everything? That's never really explained. How about, how about the, how about like child abuse? That gets interesting because there's a good argument for it, for how he treats the monster. The, you know, the curveball is the monster doesn't have the body of a child. So it might be definitely, you can make abuse 
charges against him. Or just or abuse, not, yeah. It, just regular abuse, yeah. Just regular abuse. He also could have hostile working environment with the way he treats Fritz. <laughs> yeah, good. So there's a little of that. The way that he treats his fiance Elizabeth is not something I would recommend for anyone planning to get married. That's a, you know, I say this as a bachelor, that just seems like a stupid plan to tell your fiance, I'm going to go away for a few months. I love you, but I, my work is very important right now and I have to do this. That's a it good was a way. different time. It was a different time, but a great way to end an engagement. Sure. And talk about an understanding spouse. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. Give her, give she her was a, a peach. She was. How about harboring a fugitive? With the monster being the fugitive? Yeah, or? because eventually he does come back, especially when you get to Bride of Frankenstein, with Frankenstein and Pretorius are harboring the monster who has committed all these crimes. So I would assume it would be his legal obligation to inform the authorities that this guy was here. Yeah, because if not, you're aiding and abetting. There you go, right. Yeah, and you're an accessory after the fact, or you've joined the conspiracy. A couple ways to look at it. You could get into other unauthorized medical experiments. You're not supposed to perform experiments on people without their consent. You know, when you're dealing with dead bodies, that kind of changes things. Right. uh, Because then it's an autopsy. But when you resurrect it, you know, like, did you have consent from the the dead brain in order to resurrect it? The answer is no, because he stole it. So right. that gets really weird quickly because what's the damages, you know, is it you know, like wrongful life? You know, it's a, yeah. it's a really weird situation for that, you know, to have. And then you get all the other family members because how many bodies comprised Frankenstein? Do each of them have a you know, cause of action going like you mutilated my family member's corpse? You, know, you dug it up. It's like, that's all wrong. You know, like, how do you handle that? Right. What did you do with the leftovers? It's not like Frankenstein has four arms. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, I'm guessing dog food, but yeah. once just, again, it was a different time. Different time. Uh, the depression was kicking in. It was, it was bad. Yeah. You know, what year is the story supposed to take place in? You know, honestly, I don't remember. I, I, I believe the uh, original story, I think it's the 1800s, something mm-hmm. like that. But I, 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 I wouldn't want to bet any money on that because I, especially right now, my mind is not uh, great with uh, hard and cold facts. Yeah, and that's quite all right because of pain medication. Of course. Uh, looking at the film, you can almost think late 1890s, turn of the 20th century. Because you don't see automobiles. Yeah, I think, I believe the Hammer ones were Victorian. Mm-hmm. That would make sense. That would make sense. It, it's always seemed a, like a late 19th century type story post-Industrial Revolution. Uh, they're uh, Victorian to uh, Edwardian eras. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's packed full of legal questions. I look at it from the, you know, there was no justice for that monster. Yeah, that is the big, that's the main attraction for me for that story is how wronged 
that creature is. And especially as a kid, you know, you kind of feel like you're a misfit. And when you see what the monster goes through, I was never frightened by the Frankenstein monster. I was always kind of on the monster side because he's the ultimate bullied kid. And unfortunately for him, it doesn't get better. No, no, it's the, he's the ultimate outsider. Uh, You know, Grant, he's big and strong, but he is, you know, chased by angry mobs with torches and farm equipment. Like that's, that's not good. If you've ever had to live your life fearing someone saying, release the hounds. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's not a good way to live. And I was attacked by a German shepherd when I was a child and that was just one. And that's, I still have, you know, bad dreams about it. A whole pack of them. Wow. Yeah, that would, that would not be good. Yeah, there's a lot there in, in Frankenstein. It's, it's a hard story to, to, to look at, especially at the end of the movie, because, you know, Dr. Frankenstein's injuries should have, like, included a broken back, and he should have either been paralyzed at best. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no way that he lived yeah yeah it's like you don't get between the first movie and the second one there's no way yeah you don't fall out of the the window land on the the blade of the windmill and then do a second fall onto your back and there is absolutely no care by the villagers to stabilize his injuries (laughs) (laughs) Uh, unless unless he brought himself back to life <laughs> There's no way. No way. It's like your spine should have been shattered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In several different places. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you, you don't bounce back. And, no. and but we're was, happy you did. Because yeah. that, that second movie is you're not gonna get much better filmmaking than that in, no. in any genre. I, I'm also really fond of Son and Frankenstein. Oh, I do. I love that movie too. Yeah, I saw that when we were at the Famous Monsters of Filmland Silver Screen Festival. You guys went to the, I think it was the Nightmare on Elm Street panel. Okay. And, and I went to, to, to Son of Frankenstein and saw it on the big screen. Very different movie because it's Junior getting manipulated by Igor. But he at least learns the error of his ways. Well, and what's so great about that movie is that it introduces Igor, the the you know, the the Igor that everybody, everyone kind of when they think of Igor, I think most of the time they put Igor's name on Fritz, and that's who they see as Igor. But the real Igor, played by Bela Lugosi, is fabulous. It's probably one of the best things Bela Lugosi ever did he, he is sadistic and twisted and manipulative oh yeah and i saw some of the outtakes with him really yeah they were on youtube i think it was i don't remember who tweeted it but it was him making some like comments about like how how much it hurt getting hit you know getting hung and his neck snapping and it was uh oh. it was like wow okay well done sir well done Poor Bela, you know, it was simply just a matter of you give him the right role, and he's really good. Again, that role as Igor is tremendous. I would even argue that when 
Bela Lugosi comes back as Dracula and Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, he's spot on perfect. It's like he never walked away from the role. He's great. His straight man to Abbott and Costello's comedy kind of thing going on that he does just effortless. Blah, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. No effort. <laughs> But yeah, he's, he's, I think, often underrated. Uh, agreed. Now, Matt, this has been awesome. I'm, uh, wow. I'm, first off, I am so glad your recovery is going well. Um, I'm looking forward to not looking at people with colors coming out of their hair. It is. I'm sure it's a psychedelic experience. <laughs> with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. A big thank you to James, Larry, Sean, and Matt from Monster Party for joining me to discuss the classic Universal Monsters. If you've enjoyed this series or have suggestions for future shows, please leave us a review on iTunes or a comment on Stitcher. Reviews help others find our podcast, so we greatly appreciate hearing from you. Thank you.